I've been nominated for membership in the National Geographic Society. It's my way or the highway. I know nothing, nothing. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, as always, this stuff in lieu of actual entertainment. Alrighty then. Hello and welcome back. This is Storytime and I am GamerDude. Glad to have you with us for some more stories this week. Today we're talking about doing it yourself. I got to thinking this week about all of the things I've learned to do for myself over the years. And that covers everything from changing the oil in the car to putting in a ceiling fan. And that's really because of my parents. I've said this many times, we were tightly budgeted as a family. The phrase my parents used to throw around was, we didn't have two nickels to rub together. We didn't know that as kids. My parents did a really good job of covering up the fact that we were really tightly budgeted, but it taught us the value of a dollar, and it taught us the value of doing things ourselves. And so I grew up with a mentality that you should always do for yourself when you can. I mean, there are times you can't do for yourself, and there are times where you don't want to do for yourself. But there are plenty of times where you can do for yourself. And so I wanted to talk about those things today. I think the groundwork for this mentality was laid early on when my dad bought everything at auctions. And we never threw anything away. Because you never knew when something might come in handy. Either to replace something you had or to fix something you had. My dad would take apart old vacuum cleaners and pull the hoses and belts off of them. Because you never know when it was going to fit the next one. He would take screws and nuts and bolts off of old things that he was throwing away, which was rare. He would only throw things away if they were really beyond repair. But even if he was throwing something away, the bits and pieces of an old iron fence, for instance, he and we as kids would go at it with a wrench and a screwdriver and take all the bolts and nuts off of it because you never knew when you were going to need them. My dad would pick up a box of whatever at an auction. I've told you about the Wonder Boxes. He would call it a Wonder Box because you'd spend a dollar on a box of stuff and then get it home and wonder what the hell you were thinking. But in the bottom of those boxes, you would find a treasure trove of things. It could be a jar of nuts. It could be a jar of bolts or washers or nails or whatever. And my dad would find a place for it because you never knew when you were going to need those. It might be a replacement fan belt for a car. It might be a half a dozen random sockets for a socket wrench. It might be a half a case of index cards or post-it notes or pencils. You never knew what you were going to get in the bottom of those boxes, and that's why my dad bought them. And that's why we had so much junk in the basement. Well, I called it junk. I mean, how many pencils do you need? My dad had a lot. But my dad would have a collection of things. He'd buy one of those wonder boxes, for instance, that was nothing but electrical stuff. Light sockets, wires, wire nuts. And my dad learned how to rewire lights. If a lamp died, my dad could rewire it. He knew how. He figured it out. That's something we really don't do so much anymore. We don't rewire a light. We buy a new one. Some of those old Kirby vacuum cleaners, those Eureka vacuum cleaners, you could pull the bottom off and replace the belt, replace the hose, replace the bag, whatever. My dad would figure out a way to make it work. These days, you're lucky if you can get the bottom off of a vacuum cleaner to even find the belt, let alone replace it. But that's why I found something like five vacuum cleaners in the basement after my dad died. They were all there in various stages of disarray. I think a couple of them actually worked, but a couple were there for parts. Because you never knew. I think that's why as I was growing older and I was moving into my own apartments and moving into my own house, I started to learn to do things on my own, repair things on my own, install things on my own, because that's how I was brought up. Now, before I go any further, here's my disclaimer. I am not telling you to go out and learn to do things yourself. 
I'm not advocating that you should go install a ceiling fan, a light switch, and a faucet. I'm not saying you should do that. I'm suggesting you can do that if you want to take the time to learn it. Do-it-yourself is not for everybody. My point of telling these stories today is to let you know it's possible to do it if you want to. I'm throwing this disclaimer in here because I don't want somebody to say, well, gamer dude said I could change the light switch and I burned my house down. I am not telling you you should do this. I'm telling you if you take the time to learn how to do it, you can do it. And I'm going to tell you how I did it. And then if you want to learn to do it, go ahead and learn to do it. But don't do it without educating yourself first, without learning how to do it. The warning here is electricity is dangerous to play with. Plumbing is dangerous to mess with. It's doable if you're careful and you educate yourself on how to do it right. But if you don't want to do that, if you're afraid to do it, definitely hire somebody who's a professional. I'm just going to tell you that I learned how to do it and it's possible to do. Okay, do you think that's a good enough disclaimer? Do you think I covered everything? Basically, the disclaimer is, I'm just suggesting, but if you screw it up, it's on you. All right, well, that's done. My point is, I learned how to do these things because I found that A, I was able to do them. B, it was cheaper to do them than hire somebody to do them for me. And C, it was kind of gratifying to see the results of my own labor. Yes, I took a little pride in being able to install a light switch or put in a ceiling fan. My DIY self, my do-it-yourself self, started back when I was a teenager working at a gas station. I learned there how to change oil because that was part of my job. Now, this is from a time long before Jiffy Lube or the 30-minute oil change. This is from when you had to go to a gas station or go to a garage. You had to book an appointment for an oil change. You'd leave the car for half a day. They'd get to it when they get to it. There was no drive through oil changes back when I was starting out. You had to book an appointment and plan at least half a day to get your oil changed. So in my days of working at the garage, I learned how to change oil. And I realized it was something that I could do myself at my house on my own and didn't have to pay anybody for it. All I had to do was buy an oil filter and buy the oil and I could do it. I also learned it's a much easier job if you have a full-blown garage to do it in than if you're doing it in your driveway. But you can still do it in your driveway. You just have to make some allowances. In the garage, I had a hydraulic lift. I put the car up on the lift, stand underneath it, drain the oil into a giant oil receptacle. It was a giant can with a big funnel on it, and you just drip the oil from underneath the car into this. But I also learned if you have ramps and you drive your car up the ramps in your driveway and put a pan under the oil pan of the car, unscrew the bolt that opens up the oil pan so the oil can drip out, you can do the same thing in your driveway. Okay, you're not standing up under the car. You're lying on the gravel of the driveway, but it's doable. Man, it was a whole lot cheaper to do it myself. And I could do it when it was convenient for me. I didn't have to go to the garage and lose half a day of whatever. Get up on Saturday morning, roll the car up on the ramps, put the pan underneath it, start changing the oil. That's what you did. Now again, this is back when the cars were simpler. You could get to the oil pan relatively easily. You could get to the oil filter relatively easily. You just had to know your way around a car a little bit. Same thing with a tune-up. You could just get the spark plugs out, put new ones in. You had to learn how to gap them properly. Yeah, there's a whole thing about gapping spark plugs. Each car has a specific gap that you're supposed to have on the end of the spark plug. I won't bore you with all the details about gapping spark plugs. Trust me when I tell you, it's a thing you need to know how to do. Same thing with setting the timing on an older car. Timing? What's that? You're playing a musical instrument? Nah, the timing on a car is the sequence in which the cylinders fire when the spark plugs ignite the fuel in the cylinder. You do have to set the timing on an engine to make it fire properly, otherwise it doesn't run properly. It's a pesky little detail, but it's one that you need to know to do it right. But it's something that I learned. Now these days I'm not even sure you can do it on a car that you own. 
everything's so electronic and so computerized. These days, you have to take your car to a shop, either the dealer or your local Goodyear tire shop, and they hook it up to a scope and they tell you what's wrong with it and tell you what needs to be done. That's one of the things that we've lost, the ability to do our own car work. That's why a lot of guys like the older cars, because you can still work on them. You can fix it yourself. You can tune it yourself. You can adjust it the way you like it. The way the technology has developed, they've kind of eliminated our ability to take care of our cars ourselves and save us money. But I'm talking about cars today because that was one of my jumping off points. Back in the day, you could take care of your car yourself. You could do things that, to many people, is just a weird foreign concept. Changing the oil, tuning up the car, setting the timing, what is all that? It was all learnable and doable in your own garage. I mean, I'm sure you can buy a computer scope these days and hook it up in your garage, diagnose your car yourself, but it's far more complicated than it used to be, and far more expensive. But again, I'm talking about it because that was my jumping off point. As I got older, I learned I could do a lot of things on my own. Some of them were kind of scary. I mean, the first time that you're in an apartment and a fuse blows, or the circuit breaker trips, which are two different things, by the way, I also learned that. Older houses used to have fuses, and the fuse would blow. These days you have circuit breakers, and the circuit breaker trips if there's an overload on the line. I know, I've already lost half of you. What? Circuit breaker? Fuses? What the hell is this? But these are the things that I learned moving into an apartment, and then eventually moving into a house. You gotta know what a circuit breaker is. You gotta know what a fuse is. You don't have to deal with fuses so much in houses anymore. Unless you've got a real old electrical panel in your house that still runs on fuses, everybody has circuit breakers now. But back when I was growing up, there were still fuses in houses. And a fuse, to keep it simple, is like a connector to make the electricity flow through the circuit that you want it to flow through. And the fuse was designed that if there was an overload, it would burn out so that the house wouldn't catch on fire. And so you wouldn't short out the appliance at the other end. You can overload a line by putting too much strain on it. And you do that by drawing too much electricity. Again, I'm not going to go into a huge diatribe about this is the way electricity works. I'm just trying to give you some background. I learned all this stuff so that I could do some of the repairs in my house myself. We're going to skip over the fuses, though, because nobody really has to deal with fuses, but everybody's got a circuit breaker. You know when you have the blow dryer and the microwave going at the same time and all of a sudden the electricity goes out? You've drawn too much electricity on that line and you trip the circuit breaker. So you have to go to the electrical box and throw that black switch and turn it back on. And then you unplug the hairdryer from the same line as the microwave and you don't use them at the same time because they draw too much electricity. Older houses have this problem. They have old wiring, and they're not meant to handle all of the electricity that we demand of our electrical systems these days. But in order to fix it yourself, you have to know this stuff. One of the first things that I've done in the houses that I've lived in is understand where the electricity is, where it's going, what it powers. Because every electrical panel has 8 or 10 or 16 different circuit breakers, depending on how big the house is and how many lines there are. And you've probably seen this. If you open up the door on the electrical box, on the door itself, there's a little chart. It has little boxes on it, numbered one, two, three, up to the number of circuits you have in the house. And if you had a good homeowner before you, or you have a good landlord in the apartment you're living in, they're all marked. Number one is the master bedroom. Number two is the kitchen. Number three is the living room. And what that means is each of those switches controls the electricity in that particular room or that particular area of the house, depending on how the house is wired. And it's important to know this for a couple of reasons. The first reason is if you trip the circuit, you need to know which one to look for when you want to switch it back. I mean, you can tell because the switch is usually tripped and you can see that. But it's always good to know just so you know right where to look. But it's also important to know if you want to change a light switch or change an electrical outlet or put in a ceiling fan. 
you need to know which switches to turn on and which switches to turn off. See, that's one of the things that you do if you're putting in a new light switch or putting in a ceiling fan. You have to know which line you're working with so you can turn the electricity off so you don't electrocute yourself. I know, I've already scared you off, right? Wait, I could electrocute myself? Yes, if you're not careful, you can really give yourself a jolt. It's like putting a bobby pin into the electrical outlet or putting your finger in the light socket without a bulb in there. If you've ever done that, you know, oh yeah, there's live electricity in there and it hurts. So I hear, of course, I would never do anything like that, except I've done it. And yes, I've accidentally worked on a live line and discovered really quickly, oh, I turned the wrong switch off. That's why it's important to know these things, though, so you don't do what I did. That's why it's important to know where the switches are and what they do so that you can use them or at least turn them back on when you need to. And if you move into a house that doesn't have that little chart labeled, that's one of the first things that I do is I try to find out which switch operates which room or which circuit. And then I label the chart. That way I never forget. If I want to put a new light switch in the master bathroom, I know which switch to throw. Now, how do you do this? Well, it's a two-person job. It's going to sound goofy, but this is the only way to do it. You have one person in the house and one person at the electrical box. Doesn't matter who, as long as you trust each other to get the information right. It's probably easier to do now with a cell phone if you have a two- or three-story house. That way you don't have to be yelling down like we did. All right, that was the master bathroom. Believe me, I've done that many times. What? I can't hear you. I said that was the master bathroom. I've had those conversations many times. But what you do, you turn on a light in every room, and then the person on the electrical box throws switch number one. And the person inside the house has to go around and see which room the lights went out in. All right, I'm throwing one. And the person goes around and sees, oh, okay, the lights are off in the master bedroom. So you mark master bedroom on switch one. All right, I'm throwing switch two. And then the person repeats, has to go around and find out which room the lights go out in. Oh, that's the kitchen. And you mark the box accordingly. You may never use that personally, but it's one of those little pieces of information that's important to know in case you need it. Even if you're having a guy come in to replace a light switch or install a ceiling fan, you can at least tell the electrician, I'm pretty sure switch three works on the master bedroom. They'll check, of course, but at least it gives them a jumping off point. But it's important for you if you want to do the switch work yourself or the outlet work yourself or the fan work yourself. Why might you want to do that? Well, expense is one of the reasons, especially in this day and age. You can go to Home Depot and buy a new light switch for 3 or $4. You can go buy a pack of wire nuts for 2 or $3. Wire nuts, by the way, are those things that you use to bind wire together. A lot of people use electrical tape. Wire nuts are the better way to go. And if you've never used one, look it up. This is what I mean about educating yourself. Before you do any job like this, educate yourself so you know what to do. Back when I started doing this stuff, I bought books. I have so many handyman books, it's ridiculous. I have the Time Life book series on how to do plumbing, how to do electrical work. I have the Handyman's Repair Guide. I have the Reader's Digest reference book on home repair. I have everything because I wanted to learn how to do this. These days, you can probably go find a YouTube video on everything. I still rely on my manuals because I'm an old dude, but I do look at videos just to make sure that I'm not missing anything or nothing new is developed. But if you want to change a light switch, go find a YouTube video. It'll tell you about wire nuts. It'll tell you about light switches. I've replaced light switches. I've replaced wall sockets or outlets, whatever you want to call them. The thing you plug things into. They're all easily replaceable. And you can find those parts at Home Depot or Lowe's or your local hardware store. And you can find them for, like I said, four, five, six bucks each. 
Same thing with a ceiling fan. I've installed many ceiling fans in my life. I happen to like ceiling fans. Some people don't like ceiling fans. I like ceiling fans. If you get the right kind, it adds a nice look to the house. It helps circulate the air. It's a little less obtrusive than those big box fans you throw in the hall. I mean, there's some really nice ceiling fans out there, and they add something to a room, in my opinion. I know, not everybody likes them. I happen to like them, and so I learned to install them. Yes, I have books on how to do it. They're in my home improvement manuals. This is, again, before the days of YouTube videos. I read books. I learned how to do it. And as I said, the reason that I do all that, a lot of it is primarily expense. I'm not trying to cheat an electrician out of his livelihood, but they do charge a lot of money to come to your house and do things. So I want to make sure that it's something that I can't do myself before I hire an electrician to come to the house and do it for me. The same applies to plumbing. Plumbing is trickier for me. Water, to me, is even more difficult to work with than electricity. I've changed drains. I've changed faucets. I've put in sinks. But the problem with water is it's tricky. It can leak into places you can't get to or you can't see. And if it does that, it can have devastating consequences to your house. It can leak from the second floor to the first floor, from the first floor to the basement. You could have a hidden leak behind a wall. You can try to install a sink where the drain doesn't quite reach the wall like it's supposed to. And what do you do there? I've had that happen to me. One of my DIY projects was installing a bathroom sink. And it looked easy on paper. And I got the sink in, but it turns out that the pipes didn't quite line up. The sink itself was not that expensive. But boy, doing the piping right? <laughs> oh, that was a challenge. And so I had to call in a plumber for that because I just wasn't comfortable doing it myself. I wanted to make sure that the sink drain wasn't going to leak behind the walls. Just what I needed two years down the road. Oh, the wall has collapsed because of all the water damage because of the leak. Faucets are easy. Well, let me rephrase. Faucets are easy-ish. The problem with doing a faucet, whether it's a bathroom sink or a kitchen sink, is the angles that you have to lie in, crawl around in, bend in, to reach the things you need to reach to screw things in and to unscrew things. If you've ever tried to install a sink faucet, oh my god, you need to be a yoga master. You're bending in weird angles, you're reaching up at weird angles. Some things you try to install, it would be helpful if you had three arms and you don't. Kitchen sinks especially are notoriously difficult because you usually have the kitchen sink at the top of a counter and then you've got that cabinet underneath the kitchen sink and you have to crawl in there and lie on your back and reach up and you got to try to reach the nuts that are holding the faucet in place. And it's never easy because you're lying on your back and you stretch your arms up above you and you can't quite reach the faucet because it's a little too tall. So then you're on this awkward sit-up position where you can't lie back and you can't sit up so you're in a half sit-up position trying to get to the nuts that are holding the faucet in place. And while you're doing that, you're trying to get a light in place so you can see what you're doing. Because remember, you're under the sink in a cabinet that's not designed for people to be in. Oh yeah, faucet work, sink work, it's really difficult. With a light switch, you're standing right there in the room. You're looking at the wall. You can lean on the cabinet. You can lean on a chair. You can see what you're doing. With a faucet, it's never pleasant. It's never fun. It's doable, but boy, it's a chore. I do faucets. I do shower heads. It's just not fun. Not that electric is fun either, but it's better than plumbing. The other do-it-yourself thing that I do, and it's probably my least favorite do-it-yourself thing, but it's easy enough to do except for the tediousness of it, and that's painting. I've painted many a room in my life, and I always love the result when it comes out, but boy oh boy is painting a pain in the butt. I don't know if you've seen the pictures of the auxiliary control room that I have. 
It was once a powder blue room and I decided to make it a nice bright yellow to make it sunny and warm and welcoming. And I love the way it came out. But boy, oh boy, was that a tedious job. Yes, I could have hired somebody to do it. But between the cost of the paint and the cost of the labor, it gets really expensive to even just paint one room of your house. For the cost of three gallons of paint and a set of brushes, you can have a really nice looking room and you don't have to spend an arm and a leg for it. I mean, paint is really expensive these days compared to the way it was when I was a kid. I remember the price of paint years ago was 10 bucks a gallon. It's now like 30 bucks a gallon. But for a standard bedroom, you spend 60 or 70 bucks on paint and you can have a beautiful new room. The problem with painting is the masking. That's what you use masking tape for. When I was a kid, I didn't know why it was called masking tape. Now I do. It's called masking tape because you use it to mask areas off when you're painting. And in order to do it right, so that you don't have to go scraping windows or retouch around the molding and to separate the ceiling from the wall. Because believe me, if you don't separate the ceiling from the wall, you will make a mistake and you'll have splashes of yellow up on your ceiling. That's why you mask. You want to mask the baseboards. You want to mask around the windows. You want to mask around the door frames. And as you're doing it, you're saying, oh, this isn't so bad. And then an hour and a half later, you're still masking and you're cursing all the woodwork in your room. How many baseboards are in this room? Who put three windows in this room? I can't keep doing this. You find yourself cursing out the weirdest things. How big is this friggin' closet? But if you do it, and you do it right, and you take the time to paint neatly and correctly, it is satisfying to see the result. I mean, I love this bedroom that I did. I'm sorry, the auxiliary control room that I did. The yellow is great. It pops. It makes the room look great. But it did take three coats, and it did take two full days. Yes, it was cheaper than hiring somebody to come in. And yes, there's a certain satisfaction of doing it myself and making it look exactly like I wanted it to look. But it is a tedious job. It's one you can do. Just be prepared to be going, oh, what was I thinking? For about 48 hours. So there's your DIY advice from GamerDude. I don't know if that'll inspire you to do your own electrical work or inspire you to hire an electrician, but it is doable. Just make sure you have a good comfort level with what you're getting into before you decide to do something like that. That goes for painting, goes for plumbing, goes for electrical work, goes for working on your car too. You can do it. Just make sure you know what you're doing before you start. And if you have any misgivings at all, hire a professional. Believe me, I do that too. Anyway... That's going to do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for being here. As always, I appreciate your support, and I can't thank you enough for all of the time that you take listening to these episodes. Until next time, you guys take care of yourselves, and I'll see you when I see you.